One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Jesus bending down and putting a cloth around him and washing the feet of his disciples. It's found in the book of John. And we'll kind of be covering a little bit of each book of the four Gospels. We'll cover the, the, the story of Passover. But before we do that, let me just share with you what I love about the book of John. In the book of John, Jesus bends down and he washes the feet of his disciples. And the reason that his disciples are so disgusted with this is because they would walk around in a place that did not have beautifully paved roads um, and their feet would be full of filth. And I don't know how many of you wear flip-flops on a pretty regular basis, but even if on these streets and on these roads you were to go and walk, even the streets of Disneyland for an hour and come back, you probably wouldn't sanely go to bed without washing your feet beforehand. But in a place where there is not only just dirt, but also the droppings of the animals that transport people from one place to another have made a lovely covering over the streets. And so when Jesus is touching the feet of his disciples and cleaning their feet, it's not just dust, but it's the excess of animal leftovers. And Jesus takes his hands and he rubs that off the feet of his disciples. And so when we talk about the Last Supper, I think that is a great picture of a little piece of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. He stoops down the creator of the entire universe, the creator that, that decided what your eyes, what your eye color would be and, and how long you would have hair. And the same God that decided what your character would be like and, and developed it over time so that you have become the person that God wants you to be at this point in time in your life. And the same God that says, you won't be the same person next year that you are today. Because I will take you through a journey that will transform your life. That same God that is faithful to us and wants good things for us has essentially taken all of the bad things upon himself, has dirtied himself so that you might have the opportunity to choose to be with him. So that you might just say, yes, God, I want to live eternity with you. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Our Father God, we thank you so much that you stoop down and you clean us off. Do that again to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first Passover 
is found in Exodus chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 12 with me. And if you have Bibles in your phones and you take the version app or whatever Bible you have, Exodus chapter 12, I'm giving you just a little bit of time to find that on your phones as well. Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 4, talks about what is supposed to happen on the night of the Passover. It says, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then that household is, is going to find its nearest neighbor and take according to the number of persons to which um, each of you, and you're, you're essentially supposed to decide how much of this one-year-old lamb each of you can eat because there is not supposed to be any meat that is left over. And it says um, in, in verse 4, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And the lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or in boiled water, but roast its head with its legs and inner parts, and you shall let none of the remains until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn, and in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all of Egypt and on all of... Sorry, I keep losing my spot. And on, and on all of the land, essentially... Both the animals and, and both the animals firstborn and each human being's firstborn in the land of Egypt will lose their firstborn son if they do not do these things. Fast forward to what we know as the New Testament or the Second Testament. They are still celebrating the Passover feast, that feast which was the Israelites' last meal under oppression. And Jesus is with his disciples and he knows that Judas is going to betray him. And it is said that for that reason, that is why Jesus does not disclose in Judas's hearing where they are going to take the Passover feast. Instead, what he does is he goes and tells his disciples, two of them, that there will be a person carrying a water jug in there to follow that person and ask them, where shall we eat? The teacher wants to know where he can take the Passover. And that person will take those two 
to an upper room and they will prepare the meal in that house. And so there are four places where this account um, is told in different ways. In Matthew, it is found in chapter 26. In Mark, it is found in chapter 14. In Luke, it is found in chapter 22. And in John, it is found in chapter 13. And Jesus goes with his disciples to this place that has been prepared for this meal. And if we were to take all of these accounts and bring them all together, we would miss out on why they are told separately and why they are told so uniquely with each one of the Gospels. John is a theological gospel, and it focuses on the miracles of Jesus. In John, it talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God, Jesus as a servant, Jesus as someone that does for others. In, in, in Mark, Mark is, is, is a book where everything happens fast. He uses the word immediately over and over again. And then immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happens. And it's like he's going for a jog. And right when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life, Mark slows down. Matthew was written to the Jews, so you'll see a lot of references to the Old Testament. And the way that Matthew tells the story is so that we remember to connect the things that had happened in the past with what was happening at the time of Jesus. And Luke was, was, uh, was known as the great physician. Luke wrote um, his book along with the book of Acts. So it's actually called the Luke-Acts books. It's, they're, they're supposed to be read together. And, and Luke talks about the miracles of Jesus and the miraculousness of Jesus and the holiness, the supernatural of Jesus. But one thing that they mostly have in common is they talk about the blood and they talk about the bread. And I wanted to focus a little bit, I, I, this is a little bit theological, but I want to make sure that we get these main points so that we understand how to connect what God has done and is doing with how we then respond with our lives. When it talks about the blood, I, I wrote down a couple notes about how important it was that we are to connect that blood with the blood of the Lamb. And when they were doing sacrifices, what would happen is they would take their one-year-old little lamb and the owner of the lamb, the one who had raised this little lamb since it was born, will take a knife and slit its throat in a way that allows all of the blood to drain from the lamb and the lamb falls asleep. The lamb was in the hands of its caretaker, someone that it trusts, and that person that it trusts was the one that killed it. And all of the blood is supposed to be taken out of this lamb. And Jesus talks about a cup in this story, and he says, this is my cup, and this cup is poured out for you. 
And he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And as they were doing the Passover, um, in the years and years that they have done it, the blood of the lamb was supposed to be the blood of the covenant of God, that if you give this lamb, symbolically, the lamb is supposed to be that which covers all of your sins and which keeps you and protects you and your family for the next year to come. The blood was also something that reminds me of the vine. In the book of John, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And Jesus says that once I drink this with you, I will never take another sip of this drink of the vine. And when Jesus is on the cross, he is offered some wine mixed with vinegar, and that wine mixed with vinegar was meant to take away the pain and kind of to just numb his body so that it would be easier for him to die. And even in the midst of his pain and suffering, Jesus refuses. Because never again is he to take another sip of the fruit of the vine until he is together with all of us in heaven. And even if that means that he feels more pain, Jesus will stick to his word. And I think of the other promises in the Bible that say, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And I think of, of the other promises that say that, that even though things get tough, God is with us. I think of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you in the midst of your suffering. Plans to prosper you, but you got to trust me in this. Symbolically, he mentions the, the bread, and it's, and it's um, in John it talks about that this being the, the feast of unleavened bread known as the Passover, and the reason that he makes that point is because we have to remember that when they were, were getting ready for the Passover, they would clean their entire house, and if they had any sort of, um, anything that would, that would make the bread rise, that all of that stuff was to be taken out of the house, because it was a symbol of sin. And if they symbolically got rid of all of that stuff, then all of their bread would be unleavened or not risen, it would be flat. And so Jesus takes this unleavened bread, this sinless bread, and he says, this bread is like my body. It's sinless. It's perfect. It's unblemished like the lamb. I think of the manna that the Israelites had while they were wandering in the desert. This manna, which means, what is it? But it was brought down from heaven, and nobody knew really where it came from or how it worked. They just knew that it gave them enough to be able to sustain them on a, through another day. And, and, and if they gathered it on Friday, it would sustain them for two days. And also of the five loaves and the fish. When there were many, a multitude of people, 
they were hungry and the disciples said, Jesus, we got to send them home so they can get something to eat. Let them take care of themselves. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you give them something to eat. You feed them. And they say, so what are, what are we supposed to have? We have these five lo loaves and we have a couple fish. And Jesus says, that's enough. And so he goes and he gives these five loaves and the fish and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and, and when they thought they didn't even have enough for themselves, suddenly they give it to everyone and there is enough left over for people to take home. When I think about the bread, I also think of the substitute, substitutionary lamb. And Jesus says, eat all of it, just like he had said in Exodus, eat all of it. I think of, of, of the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham brings his son, and, and his son says, Father, where is this, where is the, where is the sacrifice? I, I, I don't see it. And, and Abraham responds to his son, his only son. He says, he says, son, the Lord will provide. And it isn't until he is already tied up to the altar and the knife is in Abraham's hand and he is ready to puncture his son when the angel of God himself says, stop. And in the thicket, there is not a lamb. There's a ram. There is a mature male sheep stuck in thorns. And I can't help to think of how much of a parallel that is with Jesus' story. A full-grown male sinless that is to take the place of Isaac who represents all of humanity. Stuck in a thicket with thorns and Jesus has a crown of thorns on his head. And so while all of this is, is going on, it, it, the first century hearers would know to make these parallels because their only scripture is what we've come to know as the Old Testament. And they know that so well that they're making all of these parallels that we sometimes miss in our modern day. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed of, by someone that he has taken into his home and into his arms and, and, and has taken care of and mentored him, given him responsibilities. They've worked together. And I remember e re reading in the Desire of Ages that even Judas's feet were washed by the Savior. There's something important about meals that, that brings us together. In a time where very few of us sit down on a daily basis and, and have a meal together, there is a special time of celebration where we all do get together. We eat sometimes an Easter meal or 
maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's for birthdays and celebrations. And we usually eat with those that we know and those that we love and those that we care for, but very rarely do we outwardly go and seek for people we don't want to be associated with. Very rarely do we go out and do we seek people that if people see us with them, they might think we're just like them. But that's the Savior that we're talking about. That's this Jesus that we're talking about that, that so goes out and he seeks the, the undesirable, the outcast, the unwanted and says, come and eat with me. And you see this social class cluster of people who are, who are dignitaries and then people who are from the streets and prostitutes and, and, and people who are tax collectors and, and he brings them all in one place and they eat together. And there's a lot of drama in the midst of all of that. People back talking and, and talking about people behind their back, people whispering about those uh, other people that are unwanted. But it was for each and every one of them that Jesus took the beating, that Jesus let his blood flow just so that they could have an opportunity to be with him forever. And, and I, I tell this story to myself over and over and over again, but in all reality, it's really hard for me sometimes to really truly understand what it means to have Jesus come and be my substitute. And, and yes, Jesus, please, may your blood cover all of my sins and may your blood cover the congregation, Lord. And, may, and it just seems like theological language that we use because we know what it's, what it, what it, that, that it's what you say, but we don't really understand how it impacts us and what it means. It's like our child running across the street and we had just yelled at this child for back-talking and being rude and embarrassing us in front of everybody. And it's so frustrating and embarrassing when kids do that to you. And, and our child runs across the street because their ball has, that they were playing with has, has gone across the street. And they run to grab it. And you see a car coming by and someone's texting on their phone. And you know you don't have enough time to explain to the child to trust you enough to come back, so you run out into the street, and you grab your child, throw them across the rest of the street, you get hit by the car and don't make it, and the only thing your child can think of is the broken leg they suffered because you threw them. I can't tell you how many times I've asked God why in my own life. Why, God, did you let me suffer this pain? Please take it away. Why, God, didn't this relationship work out? Why, God, didn't I have the family that I always wished I had? Why, God, didn't I have this or that? Or why don't I drive a Maserati? Why, God, doesn't my family own this really fancy and ritzy house that we can invite everyone to and have banquets and people love our house so much they want to rent it so that they can have weddings there? Why, God, 
Is my life not the way I want it to be? And it's so easy for me to say, you said life would be easier. You said that things would, would, that you would work things out. And you said, and I worry so much about who God is not and how God isn't following through that I forget that I actually do have some responsibility for myself in my own life. And maybe if I had learned to live in a certain way or respond to people with more kindness or to respond to people with more compassion, maybe if I had taken the time to, to gather finances better and, and, and to prioritize what saving really looked like and, and maybe if I had learned about investments and maybe if I had studied and stayed in school a little bit longer or maybe if I had studied business a little bit better or maybe if I had just learned to be kind to people instead of complaining about how imperfect they are, they'd still be around. And these things, they all seem so big and so important at the time. But the one thing that God is wanting to do in each and every one of us is to show us that he would rather die and have an opportunity to be with us than to live without us. That God would leave a place where people cry out, holy are you, God, you are so amazing, and they worship him, and they bow down before him, and everything is beautiful, and everything is perfect, and people look around them, and they see that even the very presence of God is glowing because he is so holy, and they know that if they just come a little bit closer, that the holiness of God will cover them, and they can feel it in their bones, and they are so overwhelmed by the presence of God they cannot help but worship him, and yet God is here in this place, and we do not acknowledge that he is here. Do it too. Because I get so focused on other things that aren't important in life that I think are the most trivial, but yet most meaningful things for me, and then I complain to God, why God, why God, and yet Lord but I have poured out my blood for you. And in case you don't recognize it in, in these four books, I, I'm going to show you all over the Bible that I have been telling people throughout the centuries that I love them so much. They don't have to pay for the things that they've done, they, that my blood covers them. And that doesn't mean that you go out there and you do as many bad things as you want. But if you realize how much I love you, then maybe you will respond to me in a way that says, Thank you, God, that I don't have to suffer what you suffered. And God, I know that I am suffering, but one day I too will wake up from the grave and I too will be crying out to you, holy are you, God, because despite myself, you, your love covered me and your blood covered me and you took my place so that I could be in the place where everyone praises you and my voice can then join the choir. that sings your praises. Church family, we can start doing that now. I remember once a family member, a very close family member, 
was suddenly in the hospital and we were making life and death decisions. And um, we didn't know if they were going to make it, you know. And I remember that in that time, I would sit in their hospital and I would sing praise songs. Because it was the only thing I knew to do. Because they couldn't talk back to me. And I can't tell you how comforting that was just to me. And I didn't even mean for it to be to me. But in the midst of not knowing if someone is going to live or die, I tell God, I'm going to praise you because that's the only thing I know how to do. And not only that, because I know that this death is never the end of the story. We know, we've read the scriptures. We know that in three days, Jesus raises from the dead. We know that there is this big earthquake that happens and the tomb stone is, is rolled away and Jesus comes out, but it doesn't mean that death doesn't scare us anyway. There are three girls that will forever stay in my mind. I, I left my church and went to go do chaplaincy in Florida um, for a year and am doing it uh, a little bit here in California as well. And out of all my experiences, one story that sticks out to me the most is about three girls that are young, maybe 16, 18, and 21. And they're sitting on the windowsill and they're talking and I go and I talk to them and one of the girls says to me, she says, you know, my, my, uh, my friends at school, they don't really get it, you know? They each had different dads, and none of the dads were really in the picture. And I don't say that because, oh, it was one of those people, but I say that to say there was no dad for them. And the only thing that they had was their mom, and their mom was a few feet away asleep and they knew she would never wake up. They say, my friends, they just don't get it, you know. They come to us and, and they complain about their parents. Oh, my mom, she just doesn't understand. She's always getting in my business. She's going through my stuff. Oh, my, they, they just call me so much. And tears started rolling down their eyes. Oh, they have so many rules for me, you know. They don't even let me hang out late at night. She said, they just don't get that the one way that they can honor our mom is to love the one that they have. And the one way that they can honor my mom is to love their dads too because we didn't even get one of those. And the youngest was the one that had the hardest time. I get so teary-eyed when I tell this story. The youngest was the one that had the hardest time because she and her mother were the ones that like butted heads a lot. And 
oh my goodness, I sat with her and started a conversation and she started just talking to her mom and saying, I'm so sorry that I wasn't the daughter you wanted me to be and I'm sorry when I wasn't patient with you and I just want you to know that I love you and for 20 minutes didn't stop. And a few days later they had to say goodbye. But I remember that story and that story and those girls have changed my life forever because I want to honor their mother's death by being grateful for the lives that are in mine. And it reminds me of the story of Jesus. I want to honor the death of God by blessing the people that he would want to bless. By spending time listening to what God has to say to me. By changing my idea of Jesus and the Holy Spirit God being some glorified Santa Claus where I, I, I write down my wish list of, of things that I would like because I think I deserve it. I've been good this year. And if you're real, Jesus, then you'll do this, and you'll do this, and you'll do this. And Jesus, I feel like this. And Jesus, I, this is going on in my life. And Jesus, Jesus, and then it's like, do you ever, Josie, do you ever just kind of, do you forget that Jesus has something to say to you too? And maybe it has absolutely nothing to do with what you want, but what he wants for you in your life. So I've learned these past few years to stop talking to God and start listening to what God has to say to me in silence. So in my silence, God is welcoming me and God is welcoming us to his holy table. In Spanish, this is called la Santa Cena, the holy dinner. And Jesus invites you to his holy dinner every single time you have a conversation where you talk and then you listen and you listen some more and you listen some more and then you respond. And God is always wanting to have a holy dinner with you where he can say, take this, it's my blood, it's poured out for you. And you know it because you know the story of, of the Exodus and how I took care of people. And, and you know this because you know that I can give bread and multiply it. And, and you may have even experienced it in your own life where you didn't have enough food and I sent someone to you just to give you enough. And, and, and then you know about it because I want you to realize that you too have been a blessing to someone. And remember those moments when you gave food to someone else. You don't know how much of a blessing it was, but if you just let me do for you some things that I want you to do for others and we kind of just keep going back and forth in this give and take relationship with people we know and people we don't know and, and, and I want you to know about this blood, this blood that you know was the blood of the lamb and it's all poured out and it covers your sins and, and, and know that I will never take a drink from a cup of the vine until I'm with you in eternity. Do you know that I'm waiting for that moment and do you know that even when I was beaten and bloodied and bruised and even when one of my own betrayed me, I still have a deep passion and I would not change it for anything. I want you 
and not just you. I want you to recognize that you're my tool. So go and change someone else's life. So stop being like the Pharisees, Josie. Stop being like the, like the Sadducees that go and whisper and say, how is that even possible? They're not even doing it the right way. That's not how I was taught Jesus is supposed to speak to me. And that's not how I was taught the presence of God was supposed to come. Do you know that, that, that the person who was, who was the Messiah was supposed to be rich? and the Messiah was supposed to be powerful and the Messiah was supposed to help people overthrow the, the Romans so that then they could be the ones in power. But then Jesus comes as a humble servant and Jesus comes as someone who's poor and Jesus comes and he doesn't associate with the rich and the powerful. Jesus comes and he associates with the unwanted. He associates with the outcast. He associates with women. He associates with prostitutes. He associates with the Sadducees. He associates with the people who oppress everyone in the community by taking their money when they don't even have any. Jesus loves the IRS. And Jesus wants me and you to share a meal with someone that we hate, with someone that we judge without knowing them. Jesus wants us to share a meal with the people who backstabbed us. Jesus wants us to share a meal with the people no one else wants to be associated with. I wonder what it would look like, and, and I don't even know how to do this. How would I go out and find a prostitute and say, how much would it cost for an hour of your time? Let me take you and go give you something to eat. And I don't even, like, how do you do that? I don't even know. But Jesus calls me to do that. Jesus calls me to go and do things that other people would laugh just because I mentioned it. Jesus would call me to go and do things that might even get me kicked out of church. Because the people that he blessed, the miracles that he bestowed on other people, that was so much so that they were kicked out of church because of it. Jesus doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to love so much that it makes other people uncomfortable. He calls you to say, go out there, mess up, and, and you'll get it right eventually. But don't be so hard on yourself. Everyone else is messing up too. And if people are going around and they're pointing fingers at you and they're saying to you, you don't belong in this table, you're too much of a mess up, please remember that the most judgmental people that we know have the most issues. And it's a lot easier for them to point other people out so that it takes the spotlight away from the issues in their life. Because they think, and I've done it too, and you've done it too, sometimes we just think we're so much better than other people. Sometimes we think that we know more and we want to let everyone know that we are so intelligent. I mean, is it just me? Like, maybe it is. <laughs> but I do it. And I know there's a bit of us in all of us. Like, there are moments where I just want to yell at people or say some sarcastic comment, which still comes out because it is my nature. And I just... I've gotten a lot better at it. You'll get better at it as you get older. <laughs> but God invites you to his table and you don't deserve to be there. God invites me to his table and I don't deserve to be there. 
So what does that mean about how we send out invitations as well? What is God calling me to do that's different? Because I don't want to leave this place and be the same. God is calling you to be uncomfortable. God's calling you to make decisions that make other people talk bad about you. God is calling you to love so strong that other people feel uncomfortable around how you love. I don't know where in all of this God has spoken to you. I can tell you for me, God has put me through the fire by causing me to be in a place where I have held the hands of dozens of people while they died. And it is in holding their hands and accompanying them through death that I have learned to appreciate life. Where is God calling you to get uncomfortable? What situation do you need to put yourself in so that people can talk about you behind your back because you're not acting like a good Christian should so that other people can know their love? I'm just so grateful that a God that is so amazing and so loving gets that I don't get it and that I'm not going to make it perfect. And he says, I'm going to love you anyway, and I'm going to give you opportunities anyway. And you know what? If you just kind of get stay around me, I'm going to use you in ways you didn't even know you could be used. And if you choose to deny that I even can use you, or, or, or if you deny that I'm even here, guess what? I just need your mouthpiece because I created it, and I will still use you to glorify myself in someone else's life. Whether or not you want to, you can be a blessing, and you will be a blessing, because that is glorious. Even at your very worst, God will use you for his glory. I believe that, and I believe that God is never, ever, ever going to give up on you. And thus, that's our charge too. To never, ever, ever give up on the people that God has brought into our path. So as we end today, I just want to make this call to you. I know what it's like to not have it all together in my life. And guess what? That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to try, not to be perfect. And if in the midst of your life, you're feeling like you want to get into a deeper relationship with this God that is so confusing because he has all these rules that he wants us to live by, but then he also wants us to balance those rules with this thing called mercy and grace. And you want this God to be the one that has the authority to love you and protect you and to use you in ways that change the world even when you think it's not possible because of who you are. 
because of the coldness of your sin, because you think you're better than other people, because you think you're not good enough, whatever your reason is, if that is something, God is calling you to give your life to him. You know, I gave my life to God when I was so little that, you know, our pastor, and he, he, would, he would take a little, a little napkin and, and cover it over his head, and, and he, would, he, was, he was wiping his brow, and I had come up to the altar call, and, and I, I had to tug on his suit jacket so that he could even see that I was there because I was so little. It doesn't matter how little you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. God wants to have permission to have the authority to love you over your life. And if you want to give God that authority through baptism, I invite you, if God is calling you now to come up, to come and sit in this front pew, if you're too scared, don't worry. You don't have to do it this way. You can go find one of the elders or you could... You could go find someone else and say, you could tell your parents, you, could, you can tell your friend, I want to give my life to Jesus through baptism. I'm ready to do it. Can I invite you? Don't wait another moment. Not another second. It's worth it. So if you want to make that decision, I'll be in the back. You come and you grab me, get your phone number, give me your name. I'll make sure Pastor David gets it. Don't wait. It's worth it. Let's bow our heads. Father God, there are some people that may be wrestling with whether or not they want to dedicate or rededicate their lives to you in baptism. God, I ask that you would continue to push them and make them uncomfortable until they realize that you are the safe place. Help them in that place of decision. Guide them. And for those of us who've already made that decision are just living everyday life, God, I ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know how it is to answer your call, God. What do you want us to do? Who do you want us to restore relationships with, God? Who do you want us to forgive? Who do you want us to be compassionate towards? How do you want to make us uncomfortable, God? Make us uncomfortable for the furtherment of your kingdom, we pray. Use us today in Jesus' name. Amen.